0: Today, we continue our study of the Gospel of Luke in chapter 21, verses 29 to 38. Let's begin our study, however, going back to the Old Testament, the book of Psalms, the 96th Psalm. I want to read the final three verses of Psalm 96 before we turn to Luke 21, beginning at verse 29. Psalm 96, beginning at verse 11. Let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all it contains. Let the field exult and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for he is coming. For he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. And now to the Gospel of Luke 21, beginning at verse 29. Speaking of Jesus, who is there, Mount of Olives, with his disciples. Then he told them a parable. Behold the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they put forth leaves, you see it. And know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life, and that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap for it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth but keep on the alert at all times praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the son of man now during the day he was teaching in the temple but at evening he would go out and spend the night on the mount that is called Olivet. And all the people would get up early in the morning to come to him in the temple to listen to it. Amen. May God add his blessing to this reading and our understanding of his gospel. It was the custom of our Lord Jesus Christ, those final days before the cross, to spend his days in the temple teaching, and his nights outside the city walls across the narrow Kidron Valley that lay just east of the city. So every evening, after teaching in the temple, every evening, he and his disciples would leave the temple, leave the city walls, cross that narrow valley and take the winding road that led them up the hill called Olivet or the Olive Grove, which wasn't very far. It sounds like it was far, but it really wasn't very far. They could be there on Mount Olivet from the temple within a half an hour, half an hour's walk. And Bethany was off in that direction too, just a mile or two farther down the road, and he had friends there. And, of course, the Lord had friends in Jerusalem, too. But spending the nights in Jerusalem, he'd have been under the constant surveillance of his enemies. He would have been under the constant threat of an untimely death by assassination. So great was their hatred of him. He had friends in Jerusalem, but his enemies there felt absolutely no compunction about snuffing him out prematurely if they could. And thus far, Jesus knew that his hour had not yet come. So he spends his nights outside the city, putting some distance between them. It just seemed to be the prudent thing to do. Well, that daily commute between the Mount of Olives and the temple, that daily commute gives Jesus ample material for object lessons in his teaching. Olivet, or the olive grove, of course, is an orchard. It's an orchard. And the Gospels record his drawing upon vineyards and fig trees and other growing things to illustrate various lessons on the kingdom of God, which was his constant theme of teaching. Object lessons drive the point home. They make it memorable, and good parents and good teachers tend to learn this early on in their dealing with the children God has committed to them. Object lessons make the lessons stick, make them memorable, and their children remember. Now, it's Passover time, of course. uh, The time that we are reading about It's Passover time. That's what brought them, along with many thousands of other Jews, to Jerusalem in the first place. It's Passover time, which means it's early springtime. It's either the very last days of March or the very earliest days of April. And I hope you're in tune enough with the cycles of life that I don't even need to tell you what's going on in the fields and trees in springtime. But it may be helpful to remember, to bear in mind, that the trees and the vines and the grasses, they don't all spring to life at exactly the same time. I have uh, observed in orchards of my own, I've had a couple of them in the course of my life, and I've observed that almonds, apricots, peaches, They begin putting their leaves out fairly early in the springtime. Apples and pears, just a little bit later, and figs later still. I once had two fig trees that kept me guessing for weeks, and I I kept wondering, did, did these two dry little sticks that are stuck in the ground, planted in the ground, did they even survive the winter? That's how long I had to wait before they first showed any sign of life. Well, in the wake of his Olivet discourse on the end of that Old Testament age and the beginning of a new one, Jesus tells this very simple parable. In fact, although Luke calls it a parable in verse 29, you and I probably wouldn't have even thought to call it that. We would call it an illustration. Jesus is just putting two things side by side to compare them. He says, behold the fig tree. And he probably saw one there by the road or wherever he was. Behold the fig tree. And all the trees. As soon as they put forth leaves, you see it and you know for yourselves that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, the things he had just Spent a lot of time outlining for them. When you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. I want to remind you today of the testimony of the trees to the kingdom of God. The testimony of the trees. Now, Does that sound strange coming from the lips of a reformed preacher? Does it sound New Age? Does it sound pantheistic, even? The testimony of the trees. Well, I could reference, of course, the brilliant works of Tolkien, or of C.S. Lewis, and other Christian writers for that point. Their stories have kept us thinking about these things, For two or three generations now, I could talk about literature. Let me take you instead to our common source book for this idea that the trees, and in fact, all of nature, bears testimony to the glorious reign of God. You find that idea in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms of the Old Testament especially the Psalms, in fact, the 96th Psalm that ends, you remember, in these words. Let the heavens be glad, that's the sky above, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar and all it contains, let the field exult and all that is in it, then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for he is coming. Trees, singing for joy. For he is coming to judge the earth. He'll judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Dear ones, listen. The inanimate world, the inanimate world has its own way of bearing witness to the power and the wisdom and even the righteousness of God their creator. What did Jesus say earlier this very week that we're reading about? What did he say earlier that week as he entered Jerusalem for the first time? If these cheering children and these cheering disciples were silent, the rocks would cry out. The stones will cry out. Turn the page with me from the 96th to the 98th Psalm. Let the sea roar and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Once again, inanimate things, praising and rejoicing in the Lord. Of course, we've known for a long time that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. We've known that for a long time. And truth be told, we didn't even have to have the 19th psalm tell us that. All you need is a clear night to look up and see the moon in its predictable phases To see the movement of the planets from night to night. To see the, the fixed stars, fixed in their appointed places. Those stars are not there by act of Congress. Congress may mess with the setting of our clocks twice a year. But they have no power to alter the perfect regularity, the predictability of sunrise and sunset or the changing of the seasons. These powers over nature. Even the power, remember, even the power to make the sun stand still when he so pleases. Even the power to darken the sun. These powers over nature, God reserves to himself. In fact, he's bound himself by covenant with Noah, the father of us all, in Genesis 8.22. Are these rebel nations, including our own, fretting over this matter of climate change? Maybe the nations simply think too highly of themselves and their power even to do damage to God's creation. God is far greater than we, and he says he's keeping it he's preserving it he's governing it he's keeping it safe the absolutely faithful god who binds himself to his covenant promise while the earth remains seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease Observant people, men and women of science, they've always known that nature declares the glory of God. There's simply no other rational explanation for these things that I've been talking about. He's created the natural world, and so it reflects his glory as creator. He providentially sustains the natural world, and so the the natural processes by which he sustains it, also reflect his glory. It can't be otherwise. Every clay pot that has ever been made has a potter. And the quality of the pot, the characteristics of the pot, tell us something about him, about that potter. But here, in these verses, Jesus introduces us to an idea that's not exactly new, but it's not as well understood, I think, by Christians. His illustration from the budding of trees implies that the processes of nature also articulate in silent but powerful ways God's sovereign reign as Redeemer and Judge. He's created the world. He's providentially sustaining the world, but he's also guiding this world toward its final judgment and the redemption of his people. Behold the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they put forth, as soon as that late budding fig tree finally buds, you see it and know for yourselves that summer is now near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, when you see the coming of the Romans, when you see all the imperial turmoil going on across the whole empire, when you see the encircling of Jerusalem, and so on, when you see these things, recognize that the kingdom of God has come near. The fall of Jerusalem portended by the budding of the fig tree in its season this would be an act not of creation nor merely of providence the fall of jerusalem was going to be an act of god's sovereign judgment on that nation and the redemption of the believing remnant the church a fig tree of all things a fig tree has the power silently to testify of the nearness of these things as well. God's judgment and redemption. So what does all this mean for us today? First, let me suggest that it means we need to become more sensitive to what's going on all around us in the natural world there are still signs of the times that are posted all around us. Right under our noses. And some of them are very simple. Some of them are so simple we hardly even notice them. There are those recurring signs of the times before us in the springtime when the trees are in bud. Those little things have a story to tell a story about the Lord Jesus Christ and the unfolding of his redemptive plan in history. We might not have seen that, but Jesus here reminds us it's there for us if we look. That's in the springtime, but this, of course, is November. This is November. And there are signs of the times here in these autumn months as well. There are signs all around us today, even in nature. Those leaves that were budding last spring, they're falling today. They're falling off the trees, and farmers and gardeners across the northern hemisphere are busy raking them up. And they're gathering in their harvests, Farmers, gardeners, gathering in their harvests, reminded the psalmist in the 67th Psalm of that coming day when God is going to harvest not the gardens and the farms, but the nations. When he'll separate the wheat from the chaff and judge the peoples, that is the nations, with uprightness. You see, even with the scriptures given to us, God is still posting in nature all these signs of the times. Because God hasn't changed, and his redemptive purposes in Christ haven't changed. He's still judging rebels. He's still blessing his faithful covenant people, the church. The chaff is blowing away. And he's gathering the good wheat into barns. Our Bibles tells us that. But the natural world concurs with it. The natural world agrees. This is what God is doing in the world. God is still sovereign. He's still active in undiminished power and goodness and grace. The natural world tells us so. What theology do you read, for instance, in a passing thunderstorm? I'm sure some of you have thought of that in the midst of a violent thunder and lightning storm. The 29th Psalm gives us a pretty good idea of what we might learn from the voice of the Lord in the storm. For how do you understand the sovereign God sending natural disasters on the rebellious nation? How do you understand polar vortexes that freeze and cripple even deep south Texas? What are we to think of pandemics and plagues that are outside our power to control, even for all our best efforts to vaccinate them away? Then there are the hurricanes, the tornadoes, the earthquakes. If God is sovereign, if God is sovereign, then these things don't just randomly happen every now and then. Go ask Pharaoh about these things. If God is sovereign, then he sends them. He sends them. And it falls to us to interpret them by his word. The Olivet Discourse listed for the disciples a number of observable signs of the time, signs designed to point them toward the redemptive reality that lay within the lifetime of some of them. And what was the reality that these things pointed to, the things that he had been talking about in the Olivet Discourse that we've looked at over the last couple of weeks? What was the reality? It was the end of the old covenant and the beginning of the new. That was the reality. And that apostolic generation wasn't going to pass away. It wasn't going to pass away until the transition from the old to the new was complete. The end of the temple and its worship. The end of the animal sacrifices, the end of the priestly vestments, and the incense, and the harp, and lyre, and timbrel, and cymbals, and all that went with them. The worship the apostles had known all their lives in the destruction of the temple was about to go away permanently. Which is disconcerting. It's disconcerting. It's got to be. But there was a plus side to it. Worshiping God was soon going to become much simpler and yet much deeper. Much clearer. Because all the shadows cast by Levitical worship were going to flee away in the sheer radiance of the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Christ, walking among the lampstands. It's just as Jesus told that Samaritan woman back at the well in John chapter 4. He said, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. An hour is coming, and now is the true worshippers shall worship the father in spirit and truth for such people the father seeks to be his worshippers god is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth let us therefore today become more sensitive to the signs of the times right down to the little things, right down to the budding of a fig tree or the gathering in of a harvest, because all of them in some way reflect the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ and his redemption of the lost. A second thing we need to remember is the personal duty, this awareness of our times, places upon us awareness of our duty in view of these things we are no longer to live as we once lived back in the days we were separate from christ back in the days when we were without god and without hope in the world we no longer live that way here's the application jesus makes the old is passing away very very soon it's passing away the new is close at hand Within that generation, the transition from the Old to the New Testament Christianity would be an accomplished fact. Within that generation. This being the case, how should we then live? Well, Jesus tells us. Be on guard, he says, that your hearts may not be weighted down with dissipation, and drunkenness and the worries of life and that day come on you suddenly like a trap for it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth but keep on the alert at all times praying in order that you may have strength to escape all things that are about to take place and to stand before the son of man how should these young men live these young men, these apostles, who within their own lifetimes would see the old world and the old ways snatched away from them. And then how should we live, you and I, as we navigate the perils of, these own, of our own troubled times? How should we live? Let me suggest to you that the New Testament Christian life, according to Jesus, is to be one of sensitivity, sobriety, and serenity in Christ. Sensitivity, sobriety, and serenity in Christ. Sensitivity, first of all, sensitivity to what's going on around us keeps the Lord's church out of the jaws of many a trap that's set for us. If Jesus has told us in advance to flee Jerusalem, to flee every rebel institution, to flee every sinful practice that's targeted for destruction. If he's told us that in advance, then let's be sure not to be there when the Romans show up and the Acts of Judgment falls. Let's not be there. Sodom wasn't the place to be when fire and brimstone rained down upon it. Jerusalem wasn't the place to be in A.D. seventy when the Romans breached the walls and over a million Jews died who were trusting in those walls to save them. We've got to be sensitive to the judgments of God abroad in the world. Then there's sobriety. Which means, of course, don't be drunk. Of course it means that. But the question for many people is, why not? Why not simply get and stay drunk? If it's true that the whole world as we know it is coming to an end, then why not just live for the moment? Why not drink ourselves or medicate ourselves or otherwise entertain ourselves into oblivion? Why not? Why not just fritter our lives away in useless activity of one kind or another? There are 10,000 ways. Aren't there 10,000 ways that we can waste our time, squander our resources? Which is what dissipation is. Maybe it's drink, or maybe it's something else. The question I want you to consider is how do you waste your time? The Lord of the church aims to produce men and women and children who are able to keep a clear head and a pure heart and a steady hand through all of the turbulence of troubled times, including these troubled times. He intends by his spirit to produce men and women and children with the self-discipline to focus on knowing and doing the will of God when everyone else around us has gone democratic, has gone lawless, has begun doing whatever seems right in their own eyes. That's not for us. Those people are rushing right into the jaws of the trap that's set for them because they think they know better than the king. So, dear ones, be focused, be on guard, be on the alert. This is the sober Christian life. And finally, Christ calls us in troubled times to a life of serenity. Serenity. Be on guard that your hearts may not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. The old campfire song says, they'll know we are Christians by our love. Which is fair enough. Christian love is distinctive. But let me add that in times like these especially, Times like ours, especially. What sets you, the Christian, apart from your unbelieving neighbor is the serenity with which you meet adversity. The sense of peace about it. That serenity of spirit shows the world that your treasure, your treasure is hidden somewhere else. It's not here. You and I aren't immune from disaster, disease, divorce, or any other devastating loss that's common to human experience. We are not immune from those things. We're just not. Christians lose their jobs. They lose their homes. They lose their lives, just as unbelievers do. The striking difference is that we face these hardships, these losses. We face them hand in hand with the Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep. In fact, we face our losses with one who is much more than a shepherd. We face these disasters hand in hand with the king of kings. The Lord of Lords, the one whose royal ambassador solemnly assures us on the pages of this new covenant that our covenant Lord causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. All things. In fact, in view of the risen Christ's total sovereignty over the unfolding of history, a kingdom that's animated by the covenant love of the king for his people. That royal ambassador, Paul, who knew something about trouble himself in his own life. Paul was able to say, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Sensitivity sobriety, serenity. That's the Christian life in troubled times. That's the life of one who by grace becomes like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. Amen.